Welcome to the SSPX Podcast, delivering sermons, lectures, and the spoken word from across the English-speaking world. On this week's episode of Questions with Father, we'll be speaking with Father Robinson about Jehovah's Witnesses, the symbolism of the baptism of our Lord, and also answering the claim that Catholicism was influenced by other religions. If you would like more information about the SSPX podcast, as well as archives of all of our previous episodes, you can visit sspxpodcast.com. While you're there, you'll be able to send in your question to be on one of our future episodes, and you'll also find a link so that you can donate in order to support our apostolate. This podcast is free, but it does take resources, so any donation would be appreciated. You can even set up a small donation monthly. It would help us out a great deal. And subscribing and rating and sharing this podcast helps us as well by sharing the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. If you have a question that you would like answered on a future episode, you can contact us by sending a message via our Facebook page, emailing it, info at sspx.org, or by leaving a voicemail with your question, 724-252-8426. Now, here's Father Robinson. Well, back with our mid-July edition of the SSPX podcast and Father Robinson joining us from Holy Cross Seminary. And the seminarians are back from their break. And uh, there was a the, the brothers I saw on the Holy Cross website, Father, the, the brothers down at Holy Cross Seminary, they went on an, on an excursion, it looks like, as well. So people getting relaxed and, and getting ready for the, uh, for the rest of the term down at the seminary. Yeah, that's right. They had a, a two-week break, and that's a sort of preliminary to the last stretch of the first semester. So today is actually um, the first day of, of final exams. As I speak to you, Andrew, the, the seminarians are taking a, a Latin final exam, and some other seminarians are taking a canon law final exam. So we're, we're sort of wrapping up the first semester right now. So if we hear the screams of terror in the background, we know what's going on. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be in a place where they can't be heard, but <laughs> I have to travel very far from the exam room to do that. <laughs> oh, that's great, Father. <laughs> well, we have, uh, we have some questions for you this week, like always, sent in by our listeners. And the first question we have is um, about the door-to-door uh, evangelists. Um, how do you handle Jehovah's Witnesses, Father, who come knocking to your door? I have some miraculous medals ready to give them. I don't know if I should engage them, though, at all, or just not answer the door. What do you think? Well, you know, I, I think um, we have to understand that we as Catholics, we have a, a treasure entrusted to us, the Catholic faith. And people do reflect um, when, when they encounter people. So the Jehovah's Witnesses especially have a lot of experience going from one door to the other, and they get different reactions. Um, so I, I think it is important, first of all, to treat them with a certain charity and also have a, a certain pity on on their souls in the sense that um, they're locked into this, this cult, which is... Uh, yeah, it doesn't allow them to to do much thinking, um, and there might be the possibility of of putting some sort of seed of the faith in their hearts. I, generally speaking, with with myself, I, I don't know. I just sort of one of these internal rules that I try to make for myself is is that when when you encounter someone for the first time, you you assume the best of them that they they be of of goodwill until they prove otherwise, and so. When you reach the point that it seems obvious that they're they're just not um, listening or they're not open to the truth, then by all means write them off. But until then, um, you you have to see what you're able to do with them. Um, if there's some possibility of of um, being some sort of 
uh, bearer of truth, giving them a, a, some light to them. Sure, and and I guess you could say that that you know obviously everything happens happens under God's will. Uh, perhaps He sent those people to your door so that you could do something uh, to bring the the truth to them. Exactly right. Um, it is. Uh, an opportunity of providence. I, you know, I sort of see the, the same thing with, with getting on a, a plane. You don't know who you're going to sit beside. And so if, if uh, there's a possibility of striking up a conversation, I've had a lot of interesting plane conversations. Sure. Um, you don't know what, what you might be able to accomplish in that, in that context. It's the same with people coming to your door. Um, at the same time, I think there has to be a bit of caution with the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I'm speaking from experience here because you know, I, I, I know someone who's, who's very familiar with Jehovah's Witnesses, and he points out that the Jehovah's Witnesses, if they see any sort of weakness on the part of people they're coming to, then they will be relentless. They will just keep coming back and back and back. Um, and by weakness, I don't necessarily mean that you're weak in the faith. You pretend you, you sort of manifest a certain doubt in your own faith. But but even um, too much kindness in, in the sense that you're, you're so nice they might take that as, well, I kind of like your message. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we do have to be firm in, in saying, look, I, I'm just not at all interested in, in, in your religion. We can, we can chat with them a little bit. Sometimes it's, it's good to already be familiar with, with some of their beliefs and, and be able to, to expose to them perhaps some of the things that they don't know about their own religion. Um, but we do have to be careful about them sort of appealing to, to sympathy. You know, again, speaking to a, a situation I was in, we had a, a lot of people in the room and, and the Jehovah's Witnesses were there. And they were purposely sort of saying to, to the person they perceive as being the weakness, they would say, well, what do you think about this? You know, right. um, in, in order to uh, distract the discussion the, the real discussion was that was going on and, and try to find the weakest point. So they'll use those sorts of tactics. And we have to be prudent in, in that regard. We don't want them coming back and coming back um, and not accomplishing anything in that. Right. In, in my own experience, I've, I've noticed that Jehovah's Witnesses, they are they're very good at, at what they do in, in that sense of knowing how to engage in a conversation and, and win people over, because that is that's part of their that's part of their faith in a sense. Um, same thing with uh, some of the Mormon missionaries. I think all the young men are supposed to go out for a year or two and, and do that. And, uh, and, and as Catholics, we don't necessarily do that. It's, it's not as much of an emphasis, so we don't have as much practice. So it, it can be kind of tricky to get into some of those conversations, uh, simply because they've, they've got the answers. They do this all day long. <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, they've, they have a lot of experience in doing that, as you say. So, and we don't, so we, we do have to make sure that, they're not gaining the upper hand in, the, in that respect, and we're not we're not having the wool pulled over our eyes. I was in a, a situation one time where we precisely were prepared. So it was a situation where these Jehovah's Witnesses were coming over to a house repeatedly, and the person was there and said, "Okay, well, do you mind if I if I invite some other people over?" So I got invited over some some other seminarians. I was seminarian ah. at the time, and this this other fellow who was an expert about the Jehovah's Witnesses. And so we were like super prepared. Um, and right. what what this this man did is he actually had photocopies of the Watchtower publication from the 1920s. In the midst of the conversation, he was like, do you know what you know, your Watchtower has published in the past? And he, he brought out these lithograph copies. It was predicting the end of the world to mm. happen in the 1920s on a specific date. And it was also telling people not to have any babies. It was, it was telling them you really should not have any more children 
because the end of the world is is coming. I mean, this was a, a absolutely and utterly ridiculous uh, in having this conversation, you know, in the 21st century to, to be able to point out what they had said in the past. Right. Um, so that, that was like a showstopper <laughs> right. at that point. It made them extremely uncomfortable to see that, oh, this is what, what has happened in the past with, with our religion. Because I think you know, they're told that they're only allowed to read their own literature, the, the Watchtower publication. Uh, I had another episode where, where I was um, getting on a plane. This was before I got stationed in Australia, but I sat down in my seat and so on. I just sort of got this sense there was something weird going on. And I started looking around, and what I noticed is with, that um, there was a, a, a fair few people in the plane who had put down their, their trade table, had gotten out this magazine, and had gotten out a highlighter, and we're just going through this this magazine and, and highlighting things. And what I realized is that the, the plane was full of Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, so they were all reading their watchtower in in sync, as it were. Right. <laughs> so did you see that as uh, Daniel going into the lion's den or did you see that as, uh, oh, buffet time? <laughs> it was to me, it was just a, a testimony to the cult like aspect of the Jehovah's Witnesses yeah. um, that this is. It, it seemed to me that that they had been told this is what they were expected to do as Jehovah's Witnesses. You get on the plane and you all read this publication and you all highlight it, you know, carefully. And that's the only thing you can read. And for me, that was sort of window into the world that was chilling. Yes. Yeah. But I think that's one thing that's, that's kind of difficult working with Jehovah's Witnesses is that um, you can't give them literature. You know, they generally speaking, they won't accept literature. I think it's it's even hard to get them to accept food, you know, food and drink when, when they come over. The questioner mentions miraculous metals. I haven't tried to give them miraculous metals. I don't know if they would accept them. It, that That's the thing that makes it so difficult to get to them is that they, they just will not receive anything from you. So you're almost left to just conversation. And I think something can be done there in some cases, okay. conversation. So your advice in a nutshell is unless you see a, a very broad opening or, or a willingness on their end, basically to engage them with, with charity, kindness, and, and that's about it. Yeah. Take a few shots, you know, make them think, make them, uh, try to make them think a little bit, reflect a little bit and make them see that, yeah, their position is, is strange. Mm -hmm. um, and then just leave it at that. Chances are it's not going to go any there from there, but you will have at least planted a seed. You know, I remember, uh, again, one time I was in, I was in Brisbane with, with Father Toke, another society priest, and there were Jehovah's Witnesses over and we were, we were chatting with them and we were talking about John chapter six, um, which so obviously is a reference to the Eucharist and the true presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. And of course, they disagreed. But but I said to the man, I was just like, can you at least admit to me that you can understand that the meaning I derive from that text might be derived from it, that, that there, it might possibly be interpreted in that way, that, that so, a reasonable person might see that that meaning in that text. And he was not even willing to to admit that it, it was almost like that question was making him feel like he was breaking his own rules like to, to even give me that much he would be breaking his own rules and for me that was that was when he crossed the line if he was if he's not even willing to admit that that the, the text could possibly be interpreted in that way um, then he's just not of goodwill there's no way i can reach this man um so i just i just sort of gave up at that point right well that's that's good advice father thank you for for the help with that uh, moving on to uh, a question 
about the intent of, of our Lord and when he was baptized. The questioner asked, why is Jesus baptized? I understand it was just symbolic, but I'm still curious as to why it was done. Well, th- that's a, an interesting question. And it's, it's one of those questions where uh, the Summa of St. Thomas comes in, in handy. You know, when people ask me about reading the Summa, generally I, I tell them, uh, no, please, <laughs> don't try to read the Summa. It's far too difficult. You, know, right. you have to have a whole philosophical formation um, and it's not going to do you much good. But, but there is uh, a section of the Summa on the life of our Lord. And this huh. section is is very easy to read, and it can be very spiritually fruitful. It's in the it's in the third part, um, and one of those questions Saint Thomas covers the baptism of our Lord. the The way a theologian would go about this, uh, someone like Saint Thomas, looking at an episode in the Gospel, is is we start with an, an assumption that comes from Revelation. We have the faith, and so we know that whatever our Lord does has to be the right thing um, and has to be full of wisdom. He is both God and man. So the decisions he makes are not mistakes. They're not errors. Um, they, they are definitely the right thing. So so that's a given. And then the, the job of the theologian is to investigate that event with human reason and try to, to find reasons of fittingness. Why, why is this a wise thing to do? Uh, why, why would the wisdom of God perceive the baptism of, of the God-man as something that was wise and, and beneficial for us? Okay. That's the theological question, really. Okay. And so, so we were basically working backwards. We, we know that it was done for, for a proper reason, and then we can work backwards using, using our own logic uh, and, and figure out the, the symbolism that our Lord intended from there. Yes. And, and we are able to, what well, we as Catholics, we believe that reason can penetrate these mysteries to a certain degree. We're not going to be able to explain everything, but God gave us reason and he wants us to use it to, to try to perceive the wisdom in the things that God does. Sure. And when we do that, when we find these reasons, we, we are uh, moved to respect God and honor God and love God more. So this is, this is a, the, the number one fruit that comes from theology. So St. Thomas, he gives three reasons for the baptism of our Lord. The first reason is that so our Lord could sanctify water. So our Lord intended to make water the matter for the sacrament of baptism by by which we are to be justified by which people would be justified and so he would would himself be baptized and that as it were would sanctify the water of the world the element of water for baptisms this is what saint saint thomas quotes saint ambrose who says our lord was baptized because he wished not to be cleansed but to cleanse the waters huh. being purified by the flesh of christ that knew no sin they might have the power of baptism. And in a sense, we could, we could think that our, our Lord did the same thing for bread and wine at the Last Supper. He sort of sanctifies these, these material elements for their future use in the sacraments. Very interesting. But baptism was nothing really new, even in our Lord's time, was it? Uh, there weren't the, the rituals uh, that we have today. Uh, but, but baptism, the idea of cleansing with water and, and purifying with water, that, that goes back into the Old Testament, doesn't it? Well, there are certainly many purifications, uh, purificatory rites that the Jews had. I don't know that there was a a rite exactly like baptism, but they were certainly very familiar with using water as a symbol for of uh, for their spiritual purification. So you you wash the body and you get a certain 
spiritual purification. But one of the reasons for St. John the Baptist performing a rite of baptism is precisely to prepare people for the Christian rite of baptism. So he's a precursor of our Lord. So he prepares people for the coming of our Lord, not just in his teaching, but also in this ritual, in this in this penance, this ritual of penance, and also the, the ritual of baptism, which gets people ready for, for the Christian baptism. And then our Lord himself chose to be baptized. Obviously, he didn't need the preparation, uh, but it was more of a uh, an example to give to us, uh, similar to how he, he underwent the circumcision in the temple when he was uh, a child. Yes, exactly. That's and and, and that's in fact the second reason that uh, Saint Thomas gives for the baptism of our Lord is that he would set us an example. We see that he was baptized, and we want to follow his example. We do the same. So, if he's going to command us to to be baptized, then he needs to show his approval of it. He himself is baptized. St. Thomas quotes St. Ambrose on this one as well. Uh, He says, this is justice to do first yourself that which you want others to do. And so encourage others by the example. And then the the third reason that St. Thomas gives is for our Lord to institute the sacrament of baptism. That our Lord, as the head of the mystical body, uh, is baptized, and that sort of sets off the train of baptism. Um, The head is, is baptized, and then from there, when the members of the mystical body are baptized, it has its effect, um, sort of flowing from that initial baptism of our Lord. So those those three reasons, are, I think, are very rich and it can be a source of, of reflection. You know, St. Thomas has, in fact, eight articles oh, wow. <laughs> about the baptism of our Lord and this question. So he goes... He goes on and on and considers uh, other things as well with regards to the Baptist, many other things. Well, I'm, I'm absolutely shocked that St. Thomas was more than thorough, but yeah. <laughs> very interesting. Definitely. And, 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 and the baptism at the River Jordan there, just to kind of wrap this up, Father, that was one of the times uh, where we, we do see uh, the presence of, of the Blessed Trinity. There was, uh, there was a manifestation of all three persons uh, at that time. Is that correct? That's right. So the Father was, was manifested in the clouds. There was a certain opening of the heavens. Um, which show that, that baptism works from a heavenly power. The fact there's some sort of movement in the heavens shows that the, the power of baptism comes from heaven. There was the dove uh, that represented the Holy Ghost to, to show that we receive the Holy Ghost through baptism. And then there's this voice of the Father, this is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. And so you have all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, present at baptism. And for St. Thomas, this indicates to us that baptism is to be given in the name of the Holy Trinity. It's the Holy Trinity working in baptism. So God chose to manifest all three persons at the baptism of our Lord in order to indicate that to us, that that baptism is to be given in the name of the Trinity and that the Holy Trinity works in the sacrament of baptism. So would it be fair to say that there's almost a secondary reason for for the baptism? It was first to to set an example for us and and to show us the importance of baptism, but also as a way to show the people, uh, reveal to them in part the mystery of the Trinity? Yes, uh, certainly when our Lord tells us about the three persons and then we see the manifestation of the three persons in this way, that that sort of confirms the teaching of our Lord uh, about the Trinity. Uh, very interesting. Well, thank you for diving into that with us, Father. And uh, we're, we're on a roll, so I guess we might as well uh, continue. We, we do have a third question, Father, about the various tenets of Christianity. Uh, there are some similarities, at least on a very sur- much of a surface level, with some beliefs of other religions. The questioner asked, 
how do you answer the various claims that Christianity was influenced by pagan ideas that already existed? In other religions, for instance, we see the birth of God as a man to a virgin mother. Uh, what do you make of that, Father? Well, you know, this is the claim of the modernists. I think it's, it might be good to, to understand the claim that's made against the faith. So the modernists do history, and they take very superficial similarities between the Jewish religion and these pagan religions, and they claim that the Jewish religion would, did not come from God. It was just sort of created as a hodgepodge from the religions that were surrounding the Jewish people. So the Jewish people themselves invented their religion from borrowing elements from the religions around them. And so that just means that their religion is not supernatural. It doesn't come from God. Um, and, and in the mind of the modernists, no religion comes from God. It all comes from just sort of this uh, subjective outpouring of emotion from people having religious feelings. Okay. That's that's the origin, the ultimate origin of religion. So how do we answer this claim? How do we, we refute this sort of false history that the modernists weave? I think the first thing to be noted is that it's just not scientific. When we observe the emergence of the Jewish people from the the, the Chaldean people with, with Abraham, and then you, you have Isaac and Jacob and the Jews in Egypt, and finally Moses. What we see is a complete new religion that is far surpassing in sophistication the religions that, by, by which they were surrounded. We know that the Jews could not have been borrowing from the peoples around them, at least for the essential elements of their religion, because their religion was like a quantum leap in terms of sophistication compared to the pagan religions surrounding them. It was, it was monotheistic. It had a very, very high idea of, of God. It had a very advanced in human moral code. The, the legislation given to Moses and the ritual of the Jews was far more developed than was that is humanly possible for a group of, of wandering shepherds. There's just no way to explain the emergence of, of the Jewish religion from, from a group of, of wandering shepherds. Right. Uh, it wouldn't make sense. Okay, so so the the, the advancement and and the what, what happened in in the Jewish faith and the you know inspiration, like, well, not inspiration, but the revelation, divine revelation that came from there, that in fact influenced other religions. Uh, most likely, any similarities that are there probably came from the Jewish faith to the other uh, to the other religions, not the other way around. Our perspective about history, as opposed to the modernists, so the way we read all these events is that we know that God gave revelation to Adam, um, that he entrusted it to Adam, and Adam was to teach his descendants this revelation, that Adam alone and Eve would be given this infused knowledge. But then that over time, after the commission of sin, this teaching of Adam uh, about the oneness of God, for instance, about how you worship God, about the code of morality, this became obscured over time for various reasons. For one thing, the people became more spread out. So the more people you have and the more spread out they are, the harder it is to, to communicate a message with complete fidelity. The second thing was that the people were becoming more and more immoral over time. Because Adam had lost grace, they didn't they didn't have a redeemer, they didn't have the, the Catholic Church and the sacramental system, they didn't have all these great means that we have to remain in the state of grace. They were becoming more and more immoral, and that blinded their minds. So they were no longer able to recognize the right moral code in nature. Even their reason itself could not figure out um, what it means to be a human being and how to act properly 
as a human being. So things like monogamy, the question of how fornication and adultery and stealing and lying and all that are, are all wrong. The, the revelation given to Adam was being severely obscured over time. And God wanted to have a Messiah come into the world in order to redeem the world. But you, you have all these people who are, are just not apt to receiving a redeemer. So what he does is he decides to separate the Jewish people and give the revelation, at least part of the revelation he given to Adam, give it back to the Jewish people and have them preserve that revelation and prepare uh, a people who would receive the Messiah. So that's how we can explain the fact that the Jews had a much superior religion, far superior religion to all the other religions of the world, uh, is the fact that God had stepped in and told them um, at least part of that revelation he had originally given to Adam. Similar to the previous question that we talked about with our Lord's baptism, it's it's the divine plan is is infinite. He knows everything, and he's getting everything prepared for us. We have to kind of look back and go, oh, well, that's that's maybe why he did it. But we can look back and see, you know, he's he's preparing the way both with the Old Testament and the Jewish people. He's preparing the way with Saint John the Baptist and the baptism of our Lord, and it's uh, it's it's beautiful to see. Yeah, and we can see how this is a much more reasonable. Explanation than what the modernists give. Sure, um, it, it's just not reasonable to say that you have this this small group of people who are oppressed by the Egyptians and they just invent a very sophisticated religion out in the desert. I mean, that's just absurd. I, I think our position is is not just. Um, what we know to be the revealed truth, but it also corresponds to reason. It's it's reasonable, whereas the modern position is not. I think I read somewhere that uh, the Jewish people, when they were in captivity, they had nothing better to do, so they sat down and invented a religion. Uh, I I don't think <laughs> I don't really see that one, but okay. Father, thank you for for diving into these and. Uh, Wow, we, we covered a lot of ground today. Three three great questions from our listeners. I, I appreciate it very much. My pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, we'll talk with you again very soon. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of Questions with Father on the SSPX podcast. That was our 20th episode of Questions with Father. If you'd like to hear 1 through 19, you can either subscribe to the podcast or you can go to sspxpodcast.com where you can hear the entire back catalog of all of our episodes. Another good reason to subscribe is so that you make sure you'll hear the upcoming episode on this SSPX podcast, which is not questions with father, but it is, well, there are some questions with a father. This time it is an interview with Father Patrick Summers, who's the District Superior of Asia for the Society of St. Pius X. We spoke with him about the challenges, the traditions, and the beauty of working for the society in the Far East. Until then, thank you for listening, and God bless you. <laughs>